It's Friday afternoon at the clinic I work at, and it's at the end of a really long week. And I have a new patient on my schedule on Friday afternoon. And typically when we see new patients, we like to see if they come with any medical records to allow for any pre-visit planning. Um, but in this case, there wasn't any information available on the patient. So I was already getting ready to go into this appointment with a little bit of angst because I really wasn't quite sure what to expect. And I was also really, really tired of working a very long week. Um, so I walk into the room and I see a very, very pleasant woman sitting there in her mid thirties. She jumps right up, shakes my hand, smiles, introduces herself. And I think to myself, piece of cake, no problem. This is gonna be wonderful. My uh, staff that ruined my patient had already said, she's just here for a physical. So I'm thinking, okay, we'll review some preventative care. Uh, we'll order some blood work. We'll have a nice session and then we'll end the visit. And as I go through and I'm talking with her, I do try to get a little bit more information from her medical history, her family history and her social history. Um, I walk through some of her medications and so forth. She says she's really not taking anything um, except for methadone. And methadone is a medication we use for patients with opioid addiction. And I'm thinking to myself, here's this woman in her mid-30s who looks pleasant, clean, nice, smiles, making eye, eye contact with me, and she has an opioid addiction, and she's on methadone. Welcome to Health Stories, real stories inside the healthcare system. This is a podcast where we invite you, the listener, to hear real life stories from clinicians and patients. And what we're doing in these interviews is we ask our guests to reflect on their experiences and share with all of us their insights and suggestions for how to navigate our complex U.S. healthcare system. I'm Nicole Deffenbaugh, and today, we are joined by Dr. D, who is a family medicine physician. She's going to share uh, with all of us her story about treating patients with opioid addiction. So welcome, Dr. D. Thank you. So uh, you were talking to us about a patient who came in and she was there for a physical and then suddenly <laughs> shares with you that she is on methadone. So what, <laughs> what happened next? So. We ended up talking a lot more about her opioid addiction and what's happened so far to get her to this point in life. And one of the things I noticed with a lot of my patients is I, I tend to try to find something I can relate to them with. And in this woman, I knew already going into the room that we were both the same age. So I figured I was already gonna be able to relate to her in some aspect and that we were the same generation and probably were at some of the same different points in our lives. And so when she told me she had an opioid addiction and she was on methadone, it really threw me because it really wasn't what I was expecting, nor was I able to find some kind of common ground to relate to her with. Um, she told me a little bit more about her history. And as it turns out, her family history has an extensive addiction history. Um, her father was an alcoholic. Uh, her mother had a drug addiction history as well too. And so, you know, this woman, she's in front of me and I'm thinking, oh, wow. So she was, you know, really prone to having this condition um, in that she had the genetic predisposition already in place for this kind of a thing. 
But then she goes on and she tells me, because at this point I'm curious, like, how did this happen? You know, did she get mixed up with the wrong crowd? Was it wrong friends? Did she get into it because her sibling was into it or her dad? No, as it turns out, it was none of that. As it turns out was she had been um, admitted to the hospital when she was uh, probably about 10 years prior um, in her early to mid 20s. She had had a couple rounds of uh, kidney infections that year and a couple of them were severe and she ended up hospitalized for at least one of them. And she told me that she always knew her family history um, was a risk factor for her to have addiction issues. So she was very careful throughout her life until that point to really avoid alcohol if possible. She said she would maybe drink a glass of wine or a beer once or twice a year, but it really didn't interest her and she avoided it anyway. And she was certainly very careful to not take any medication that would have any addiction potential to it as well too. And she had no medical conditions that would really lend itself to any of that. So that wasn't really an issue. So she had already taken the steps she needed by recognizing, hey, I'm really prone to this. I'm going to try to avoid it. So then she ends up in the hospital with this kidney infection. And I guess one of the mornings, the nurse came in, asked her what her pain level was on a scale of one to 10, one being no pain and 10 being the worst pain imaginable. And she said, she said something like a seven, like the pain that morning was pretty bad, probably the worst it's ever been, but it's not that she couldn't function or, or talk or do what she needed to do. It's just, it was bad that morning. So the nurse says, okay, let me get you something for pain and came back and gave her a pill and she took it. And she said prior to that, whenever she would give a pain level, um, which was always less than a seven before, she would, she always knew she was taking like an ibuprofen or a Tylenol or something to that effect. And so when she was given a pill again, this time in the hospital, she figured, eh, it's probably the same thing. So she didn't specifically ask what the pill was, nor was the information given to her what the pill was. As and, it turns is out, that, is that unique? It, it's a little bit unusual. So almost always the nurse will tell the patient you're taking, uh, you know, this particular medication right now. Um, what the patient thinks probably happened was, um, the nurse was getting ready to leave her shift and it was busy because she could tell she was busy and trying to hurry. And she had already been in the hospital for a couple of days and was being given medication prior to this. So she thinks the nurse probably thought, oh, this, this girl's probably already had this pill before because she said her pain was a seven today. And she, she knows what the drill is. She knows what's going on. So from what the patient can figure is she thought that that's probably how that happened right but so the patient had no idea what was happening. had no idea yeah, no. had no idea and as it turns out the pill was percocet um which is a form of oxycodone that has tylenol in it and and the patient took the medication soon after taking the pill she said she realized probably within the first hour or so that this was more than just ibuprofen that she took um she said however you know her pain was gone um and she also felt really good. So then she goes on to tell me, so the sibling that had committed suicide really had only just committed suicide about a month or two prior to her getting hospitalized this most recent time. And the sibling that had committed suicide, she had never really come to terms with um, processing that grief. That, you know, between her, her family members who were not, were not much support for her because of their addiction issues, as well as not having really anybody else she could walk through this with, she hadn't taken the time to really go through the process of losing a sibling like she did. So when she took the Percocet that the nurse had given her that morning and she felt not just good physically, but good emotionally, it was the first time she had felt that good in months. Mm -hmm. And she was able to 
not have to worry about what she was feeling as far as grief goes, is what she told me. Well, so it was affecting her physical pain and her emotional pain. Correct, correct. And her emotional pain at that point, I mean, she, you know, you can call it a grief reaction. You can call it maybe even some underlying depression that went undiagnosed for a period of time. It's really hard to tell. But what she knew was that the emotional pain wasn't there any longer. And that finally felt good for her. And so she was discharged from the hospital and, um, what would have been in what is considered appropriate was given um, a prescription for more Percocet to go home with, with the understanding that yes, you had a kidney infection. Yes, it's going to keep getting better, but yes, you're probably going to be in a lot of pain still for at least a little bit. So here is a prescription for Percocet to use if your pain is severe. Is that, is that typical for a kidney infection to be given Percocet? Potentially. It depends on the person and their pain level and really how they've been experiencing it. I suspect it was given to her a little bit more freely as this had was like the third or the fourth infection that year for her. And this finally, she was hospitalized for it. And I have a feeling that they felt a little bit more liberal with, with giving her the medication. Mm-hmm. Um, she said that she went on then to continue to take it periodically over the next week or so. And then she said when she went to follow up with her doctor after being discharged from the hospital, she said, you know, the pain's still pretty bad. You know, should we continue the Percocet prescription? And she was given another prescription for Percocet. Um, she doesn't know how many pills in each of these bottles or anything. She just knows that each bottle was lasting her a few weeks at a time or so. And she said she didn't take it every day and didn't take it every four hours. But when the pain, whatever it was, whether it was physical or an emotional pain was severe, she did take it and it did help. Mm. And after, you know, the course of a couple months, eventually that doctor stopped prescribing her Percocet appropriately. So you should not still be in pain like that, um, requiring opioids that many weeks and months after having a kidney infection. And so then she decided to try to get it from other sources. She said she would doctor shop a little bit, um, but that really didn't come up with a whole lot of options for her. So she didn't do that a lot. She did say, though, she had some friends with resources who could buy some off the street for her, um, which that is also very common as well, too. Um, People with leftover opioid prescriptions, you know, they had back surgery. You know, maybe they took a couple Percocet and they say, I don't need these other 10 pills, but I've got them here. Look at this. They have monetary value to them and we'll sell them. Um, So she was able to get her hands on some of them for a little while. And then after a while, um, that started to run dry as well, too. And she did have periods of time where she actually did dabble in heroin, um, which is um, a substitute um, in her case for the opioid that she was not getting. So it was very similar in that it lit up the same receptors in her brain that the Percocet and the opioids was doing for her. Um, Only, of course, different drug. Um, she said over the course of the last 10 years, she had been in and out of different rehab facilities, probably seven or eight times. And none of them obviously had stuck so far. So by the time she had gotten into me and I had seen her, she was on methadone and methadone is a medication that's used for patients that have an opioid addiction and they're trying to treat the opioid addiction. The idea is that it's substituting the um, opioid and that eventually you'll also come off of the methadone as well, too. However, that's also long term been something that's being looked at and being studied as well, too, because we're not seeing that um, 
um, as well as what you thought we were going to see that. Yeah. So she was, so she's been in and out of rehabs on and off methadone, periodically going back to heroin or opioids for the last 10 years. So this all started, so she's in her mid thirties. This mm-hmm. all started in her mid twenties. Mid twenties. Correct. That she's gone through and, and had this life of addiction and yes. she's tried different, you know, therapy and um she ends up in your office yes correct i want to go all the way back to when you had said when she came in she came in and you're like mm-hmm. okay 30 mm-hmm. year old we can talk mm-hmm. we've got you know similar uh, stories i'm sure mm-hmm. where where does that come from those preconceived notions mm-hmm. about when patients when you read a patient's chart and um when the patient actually comes in and it might be different than what you expect well, part of it is that I have um, a, a very large desire to relate to my patients in any way, that I get a lot of satisfaction from relating to other human beings. And so if I can relate to patients on any level, I feel very connected with them. And for me in medicine, that has proven itself to have a great benefit. They feel connected with me. I feel connected with them. There's a trust level there. And I feel that the therapeutic benefit from that just you know really can blossom. Um, when patients come in and I'm, I'm expecting that, and I'm thinking to myself, this is going to be easy. This woman's the same age as me. I'm sure we have things we can connect about. And then we don't, it really throws me. And you know, it threw me to the point where for a lot of appointments I have with patients, I, I really do set boundaries as far as time goes. And for this patient, I didn't. And I think part of it was because I really didn't know how to connect with her. So I just let her talk the whole time and tell me her whole story which was obviously very invaluable to me, um, but it does really, um, it, it, it kind of just really throws a wrench in it, um, trying to be able to then connect with someone that you thought you could and then can't. Yeah. So, so she comes in and says, yeah, I'm here for a physical, and the nurse tells you it's a physical. <clears throat> she mentions she's on methadone. Mm-hmm. Where is that moment where you go, okay, this is not a physical mm-hmm. exam, this is a totally different situation, but does she realize that it's a different visit? Do you know what I mean? So you, you've switched gears. Yeah. How do you switch gears with her and how did you do that? Well, so the template I had up in my note, I just deleted it. Because <laughs> okay. um, at that point I'm figuring, you know, we're really not going to get to a whole lot of preventative health today. Or maybe we will, but, you know, it wasn't going to be the focus that I at least was hoping it was going to be. Um, so... I guess it's the, did she know it or did she realize it? I don't even know if she knew what she was coming in for. Because she had never, she had told me she had never really had a PCP before. I mean, she had all of this. Primary care Yeah, primary care physician, excuse me, yes. And she had, you know, these, uh, you know, kidney infections back, you know, 10 years ago. And maybe she had one about then. But once her life really spiraled out of control with the opioid addiction, she really never had a primary care physician at baseline in the background helping to manage her health. So when you have someone that hasn't been in the medical system in that regard for over 10 years, it's hard to understand why you're even going into the see the doctor. She didn't need anything from me per se. She you know, had her methadone refills done through the methadone clinic. So I wasn't going to do that for her. Um, I think she probably thought you know, I'm in my mid thirties, maybe I should get some blood work done. But I don't think she really knew at that point what a physical or an annual preventative care visit means to me versus what it means for her. Um, I think the other thing that really kind of threw me on it is I had this really lovely woman in her mid thirties with an opioid addiction and she actually really wanted to maybe do some preventative care. 
And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, wow, like there's, you've got a lot going on and you really want to just go ahead and get some blood work done right now. <laughs> so that kind of um, got me as well. Yeah. So she, she comes in, I still can't figure out. So why did she come in? So you're telling me that she yeah. hasn't seen, but she has seen someone for the methadone. She is, but, right? but, but it's only that, that they'll just prescribe her methadone. They're not doing things like blood work. They're not reviewing her health maintenance yeah. with her. I don't know the last time she had a pap smear. Yeah. You know, I, I don't, I, I didn't know if she was, you know, practicing, um, safe sexual, you know, health. I didn't know if she had a healthy diet or exercise. And I don't know if she was coming in to talk to me about those things, but very quickly her story, she never went back to the preventative health care. She was very much into telling me the story of her opioid addiction. She spent the entire time talking about that. She didn't redirect herself to come back and say, hey, by the way, can I get some blood work done? She never did that. Interesting. So mm -hmm. what do you think was the real reason that she was there? Um, I'd like to think maybe because she did want to connect with someone from the healthcare system outside her opioid addiction, that maybe this time it was under control and maybe the next step was getting the other parts of her health in line as well. I'd like to think maybe it was that, but I don't know for sure. Yeah. So what happened next? So, so let's go back into mm -hmm. the story. And so all of a sudden you, um, start to hear a, a very complex story mm -hmm. uh, of her history and what's happened with her addiction and therapy. And what, where do you go to next? Like where, mm -hmm. how does this, uh, how, how does this encounter end? Where do you go? What, well, yeah. I did, after she tells me the whole story and my mouth was probably open the whole time. <laughs> she's telling me the whole story. Um, I said to her, I, you know, I, the part about your opioid addiction is, is being treated right now. You, you know, you're in re, um, remission per se, you know, you're, um, uh, you're on, you're on methadone. And I, I did ask her at one point, I said, have you ever written down your story or really told anyone your story? And she said, well, I've told my story multiple times when I've been at rehab because that, that happens and you, and you tell that story over and over again. I said, well, did you ever write it down? Because I, I had to tell you, just I, I'm absolutely just completely amazed at your story right now and just how well you articulate it. And she said, well, I'm not, I'm not a good writer. I, I don't like to write things. And I said, that's okay. <laughs> write it anyway. Because one of the things I really, and I even told her this, I said, really, I wanted to take her story and, you know, put it into like a five paragraph story, blow it up on a poster board. And I wanted to stick it in every doctor's office, in every ER, on every floor of the hospital, um, anywhere anybody had the chance to prescribe a controlled substance. I wanted somebody to read that story. Why? Why I her story? Well, I really felt like for her story, going back to the nurse giving her the Percocet, there really wasn't any one person at fault there, but it did really hurt me to know that there was a woman who is, you know, in her early to mid twenties recognized at that point she was prone to addiction and took so many steps to avoid it. And yet the medical system got her mm. and it was almost like, yeah, she could have asked what the pill was, but she didn't, but she was the patient. She was hurting. She was in pain. She wasn't thinking clearly. It was early in the morning. I'm sure that's when they do medication rounds. So why did I, why would anyone have expected her or relied on her to say, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't want an opioid um, when she didn't have a previous history of addiction. And so for her story, I feel like it's just so much more common than what we give credit to. And I didn't want, 
I just really wanted people to just be very aware about the power that we hold in prescription pads and what it means to individuals and what it could mean for really literally the rest of her life. The rest of her life, she will have an opioid addiction because of one pill that was given to her when she was in her 20s. So how did the, how did the encounter end? What did you end up saying to her? Um, I, I don't recall the specifics of it. Um, there were tears, lots of tears, um, really actually on both of our ends. I really don't cry with patients very often, but this one just really did get me um, emotionally. And part of it was because she was just so emotional. She was telling her story. It was just um, really breathtaking to hear it all. Um, so, you know, we hugged at one point um, and I might have ordered blood work for her. I don't even remember. Um, and I said, hey, let's just do a follow up in a couple months. Let's just check back in and see how you're doing. Um, and left it at that. So have you seen her? No, she hasn't come back. So why do you think she hasn't returned? I worry she's relapsed. I really do. And um, given her history of multiple relapses in the past um, and, you know, what, what, what the statistics tell me, it's, it's very likely she has. And um, I could tell at the visit that she was very motivated to want to take charge of the situation and be involved in her health. So I don't think that she wouldn't have shown back up because she all of a sudden just had apathy towards her health. She didn't seem to um, be in that state. So that's why I worry that the only reason she wouldn't have come back in was because she was, because um, uh, she relapsed. One of the things you had mentioned earlier is how um, in addiction, it's physical and emotional. Mm -hmm. and it sounds like with the methadone treatment, they're treating the physical. Some, yeah. You know, so it, I'm curious about the asking her to journal and some of the other things mm -hmm. that you were touching on. Why why those suggestions? Well, I, I do. I mean, and studies do show that cognitive behavioral therapy um, is, is definitely effective for patients that are dealing with any kind of addiction, really. And so for her, I knew that, you know, yeah, methadone was treating the opioid addiction and the physical dependence portion of things, but there was emotional trauma in her life that she's never processed. And I know she's had therapists periodically in and out because of rehab, but she never had anyone consistent in her life to help her process through a lot of those things. So yeah, methadone was going to treat her physical dependence, but it really wasn't going to do anything to help her process this emotional trauma that she's had. Um, and I... I thought maybe just the idea or just the simple nuggets of saying, hey, write your story, um, you know, talk to people about this, people need to hear you, would perhaps help her through some of that. Um, I had recommended a therapist, she had declined at that time. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's kind of where I was coming from in that aspect of it. So is the key to treating addiction more than just addressing the physical side of it? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Um, so wanting to, to shift a little bit, um, and thinking about other patients with addiction, um, cause you had said there are many, for many reasons, you really thought that her story was something that others should hear. Mm -hmm. You also said that when you met her, you were surprised, mm -hmm. um, by the person who was sitting across from you. Um, how is this story similar, um, but also different to other patients that you treated with addiction? Um, it's similar in the aspect of, uh, I, I have a number of patients that I treat who um, have opioid addiction um, or are on methadone or have an active, um, uh, you know, heroin addiction or cocaine addiction and so forth. So it's really not unusual in our practice to, to see that. So she 
really wasn't all that different in that aspect from a lot of my other patients. I'm very familiar with um, my patients with opioid addiction. So um, I wasn't at all, uh, you know, uncomfortable in that aspect of her treatment. I guess what pulled her apart or made her a little bit different was just the her pain of, of talking about how she got to this place in her life and how the addiction started and how she tried so hard to prevent something like that from happening and it happened anyway. And her looking at this point now, same age as me, looking at the rest of her life and saying this will forever be a struggle I have to manage every second of every day for the rest of my life. And so that's how, for me, she appeared very different. Not a lot of my patients have that kind of insight, I think, is, is what really got me. I was surprised that she was able to talk to me about how it all started and she had that insight to it. Um, a lot of patients with opioid addiction that have come to me, they really can't pinpoint where it started or how it started. It's just, this is where they are right now. And um, we can go back and we can talk about their first time that they've had opioid medications and where that came from and what it was. But the reality is not a lot of patients can really think about it in that aspect of it. Um, they're so, um, you know, involved in, in, in what it is that they're going to do right now for their pain, whether it be physical or an emotional, they don't really go back and, and process where this came from. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it's been so long. Yeah, it you know, could there's be. There's so many factors. Because you had mentioned the physical, the emotional, yeah. and, and economic, and, mm -hmm. and history of family. Yep. And so I, I also wonder for many, there are so many factors that maybe they've got, you know, for some they've gotten lost in that. You know, I don't remember yeah. when it started or where it started because there were so many different, mm -hmm. different variables involved. Well, and a lot of our patients, or a lot of my patients, don't really see it as an addiction. You know, they were started on opioids for um, chronic pain 20, 30 years ago, sometimes more. And so they don't see it as an addiction. They just see it as one of their everyday medications they take just like their blood pressure medicine, just like their diabetes medicine. They recognize that without it, they go through withdrawal and they're in, in pain. And it's very important to them that they have the medication. But they don't, some of my patients don't see that as an addiction. And so it's really hard to talk to them about what really that medication means and what it's like to be on that medication, what it means for the rest of their life, they don't see it that way. So you're treating people with addiction who don't recognize that they're addicted. Correct. So yes. how do you do that? Oh, that's, um, it, it's, it's chipping away at it. Um, if you put it right out there and you say you're addicted to opioids, it, you get a wall that goes right up, you've severed the relationship, you're not going to connect with that person. So I tend to just have generalized conversations about their opioid use at every visit. Um, and I talk to them about risk factors and what this medication can do long term, what it means for them to be on it now versus how, they, how long they've been on it before. And little by little, I've had patients almost self-realize that they want to come off of the medication that's where i have the most success if patients come to me and they say you know doc i've been really thinking about what you said the last six months about this medication and i don't know if it's the best thing for me to be on this like this you know should we maybe think about trying to taper this down at least a little bit for now those are the patients that have the best success the ones that um really can't come to that realization regardless of what i say or do or tell them it's going to be really hard to um talk to them about trying to taper so someone's been on opioids for a number of years. You're not handing them pamphlets like, you should go to this therapy, you should see no. this rehab. No, I'll try to investigate a little bit more from a mental health standpoint. Um, a lot of my patients on opioids are, have a history of mental health. Um, 
uh, disorders such as depression, anxiety are the most common, of course. Um, and so I'm not their therapist, but I will try to find a little bit more information about where those that emotional trauma might have come from. Because if I can pull that out, then I can almost kind of convince them that maybe going to therapy would be a good idea. And now I've been able to finally get into a treatment approach of cognitive behavioral therapy and treating their emotional status. And they, they don't look at it as like, oh, the doc's sending me to a therapist because I'm on opioids. They don't see it like that then. Mm-hmm. They say, oh, you're right. I've never really processed this terrible event that happened in my life. And we talked about it a little bit at the visit. She thinks I should go to a therapist. And you know what? Maybe that's a good idea. And so that's kind of where it could start potentially. One of the other things I, I also think about with this patient is she mentioned that she was on methadone. What do you think would have happened if she never said she was on methadone? I never would have found out. Because, in, in, you know, it's interesting. Now, with our electronic medical record system, um, everyone thinks everybody's everything's in the computer. You know, I have patients that'll come in and I say, can you tell me a little bit about your medical history? And they'll motion over to the computer. They'll say, well, I'm sure it's in there. And I'm like, no, no, it's not. <laughs> you know, you were seeing a doctor up in another state somewhere and they don't use our medical record system or you were, you know, at this location, et cetera. They don't use it. And I think people are surprised to learn that their entire medical history doesn't live in a computer somewhere nowadays. And so uh, in, our, in our record system, sometimes we can pull in medications that are prescribed by an outside pharmacy. So if this patient was getting opioids, let's say from another provider somewhere else, I'd probably actually be able to figure that out. Methadone's different though. Methadone, she doesn't pick up um, at a pharmacy. She specifically gets it from her clinic. And so there's pretty much no way I would have known that had she not volunteered that information. So thinking about uh, part of this podcast is offering suggestions and insights uh, to clinicians and patients. So thinking for other clinicians, right? One of the things um, I always wonder is what type of training do you get for treating (laughs) addiction? Um, You know, do you get any training at all? And what type of uh, education have you got just from treating patients with addiction? I would say that my formal training, meaning medical school and residency, was definitely limited in addiction medicine, though it was present. It was there. Um, and I did receive some formal education. Um, I did do rotations at uh, drug and alcohol rehab facilities, and I was able to learn a lot about the pharmacology of medications as well as appropriate treatment for uh, different kinds of addiction. So, and so I did receive some semblance of training. In, it wasn't until really residencies in particular that the idea of treating the emotional health though too was um, such an important part of addiction medicine. Uh, I think when you're in medical school, there's a lot of information coming at you all at once and there's only so much time that you can teach about so many different things before you finally have to say, you know, they can probably find out the rest of the information somewhere else or they'll learn about it somewhere else. I've learned more though from seeing patients with opioid addiction on a one-on-one basis in my office more than I would ever have learned in my formal training. And the difference is, is because you can read in a book and you can listen to a class and you can read a lecture about addiction medicine, but until you really see it happening in front of you, it's really hard to understand how it's actually affecting that human being and what it actually means to their life. Um, so yes, I've had some formal education. It was limited. I've definitely learned a lot more in practice. So what would you, uh, words of wisdom would you offer to people listening who haven't really 
treated addiction or haven't really worked with patients with addiction a lot? Um, if you're in a kind of setting where you're not going to be working with patients with addiction a lot, that's tough because if you if it's not coming uh, to you, are there any you, settings that you don't well, work with people with addiction? <laughs> there's, I mean, there's every every setting potentially is going to have patients with addiction issues. Um, whether or not they bring them to you and whether or not you know anything about it, completely different story. Um, but it potentially is always going to be there. Well, one of the things that we do for patients coming in, um, new patients especially, but periodically throughout their time at a practice, is we will screen them for drug and alcohol abuse. And so if you know we're asking about drug use, we're asking about alcohol use, again, it's only going to be available, though, if the patient volunteers that information. Um, so I guarantee you I have patients with, addic with addiction issues that I know nothing about because the times that we've screened them, they have not come up positive. In, in other words, they were dishonest and did not answer or um, their, their treatment is not uh, able to be viewed through my medical record system and it's not something that they volunteered the information for. Um, so as far as advice for other um, clinicians potentially that are in these situations, um, I've done... Uh, you know, rotations, like I said, at drug and alcohol rehab programs, that for me was probably the most helpful because I felt very immersed in the situation. It's a little bit more difficult to do outside of residency. So once you start practicing as an attending, it's really tough to find that option available. There is on um, continuing medical education opportunities, though, always in addiction medicine. And so even if you feel like you can't be immersed in the patient experience, at least attending continuing medical education would be helpful to know what the newest medications are that can be used to treat opioid addiction, what is being done these days, what is the most current recommendations are um, from there. But you, it sounds like you've learned some really valuable skills or just who you are in the world as a clinician. Mm -hmm. There are things that you do that others can do in order to create a safe environment, mm -hmm. in order to encourage others to disclose their addiction. So what is it that you're doing that might be really important bits of, of information and insight for others? I'm gonna to have to think about that. <laughs> I'm not completely sure. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what I do that might be different that people volunteer that information to me. I'm really not sure, actually. So I was, when we go back to, she said that she was on methadone, what was the next question that you asked after she offered that information? What's the next thing you did? I, 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 don't, I don't remember exactly, but I can almost guarantee you I said, tell me more. Yeah. Uh, only just some open-ended question just to let her have the table at that point. Because there wasn't anything that I could say or do to say, oh, really, how many milligrams are you on? I, I don't care. Why are you on methadone? And so, you know, I'll, I'll pose um, an, an innocent um, question to her that I feel like won't um, uh, be invasive if she didn't want to volunteer the information. But just tell me more is something general enough that most people will respond to. And so when she was talking about her mom being alcoholic mm -hmm. and dad on drugs and sister died in a car accident and all of this other information about her um, sibling dying and passing away, how did you get all of that information? Um, well, one of the ways was uh, just as a new patient appointment, I'm uh, collecting that information anyway and collecting her family history. I was fortunate in that this woman was very open to discussing her family history and very open in discussing her current opioid addiction. So uh, she was really a model patient in that aspect of it. Had it been a little bit more difficult to gather that information, I would have just posed some op more open-ended questions for her. For instance, if she had told me, well, her dad was an alcoholic, I'd say, 
wow, that must have been really hard to deal with growing up. And then most often times, right, right. Yes, correct. And then most often times people will say, yeah, and I had a mother addicted to drugs, you know, so something follows it because they almost can't help just telling you more at that point. Mm -hmm. So, Um, so being, being open and, mm -hmm. and, uh, general questions, offering empathic statements. Mm -hmm. Um, and it sounds like at the end too, you had circled back and said, and encouraged her to come back. And although she, she hadn't, it sounds like that's something that you do too. Yes. I almost always do. Well, I always do um, have a follow-up plan with every patient that I see um, all the time. And so for her, um, I said, hey, really, I really want to see you back here in a couple months. Like normally I probably wouldn't see patients, you know, if, if, you know, you're young and healthy per se and that I don't have any medical problems I'm managing for you. So in theory, we could go a year till we saw each other again for your next annual physical. Um, but in her case, I said, let's just do a check-in in like a couple months. I just want to see how you're doing and where you're at. Because yeah. we just left it at that. Excellent. Uh, so that's for the, the clinician side. Now thinking about mm-hmm. individuals who live with addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some things that you would suggest uh, in regards to when they seek a professional? And the, the I know I'm going to ask a follow-up question to my mm-hmm. question with that. <laughs> but for those who may be reluctant to say anything about it, because you already alluded to um, the fact that there are probably many patients that you have that you mm-hmm. just don't know. Yeah. You don't even know that they have an addiction of some sort. Um, so how, how would you suggest um, and encourage those uh, who are reluctant to say anything? Um, the patients that I find have the best success opening up about potential addiction issues are the patients that are coming in with a supportive member of their life whether it's a family member or a friend. And it's almost like the appointment's teed up for it, but I don't know about it. There's been times when I walk in the room and I'll have a patient sitting there and they've got their best friend with them. I say, oh, who's this? Who'd you bring with you today? Oh, this is so-and-so, they're my best friend. Oh, that's nice, thanks for coming today. And then I go about the appointment and as it turns out, well, we have something to talk to you about today. And and then, I, and I already know with the best friend there, something's going on. <laughs> so, um, but that's usually, I find that patients that are, um, coming in with someone that could be their support person um, are generally more willing to open up about what's going on. And they almost seem prepared and ready for it. Like they've, they've thought about it and they've said, you know, I'm, I'm ready to talk about this, but I need somebody with me. I'm going to go with my friend or my family member or whoever. Um, for patients that are, you know, a little less likely to open up or are not quite sure where to go or what the next best step is, really, I encourage patients to talk to their primary care physician about it. I think it's a great starting point um, because we are so connected for you in so many different aspects that a lot of people don't realize. Um, and we really can help you. We really can get resources for you to help meet you where you are right now and not push you to a place that you aren't ready to go to yet. Um, and so I find that patients that do seek out treatment through me, I'm able to give them resources that can actually help them. Mm-hmm. So you would encourage them, even if it's difficult or you feel that you might be judged, it sounds like there are many advantages to, yes. to disclosing. Yes, yes, okay. absolutely. And what about for those uh, individuals who are listening who might suspect that somebody uh, is living with an addiction? Yeah, that one's, that one's really difficult. Um, and the reason is, is because asking, um, you know, it, it, Having, trying to have um, a conversation with someone's doctor about concerns that you have is really, really tricky ground just because of um, HIPAA violations and so forth. So 
um, I'll sometimes have someone come into the office. It's usually a spouse. And I'll see the patient in the office and the spouse says to me, can I talk to you out there real quick? And, you know, the patient might go to the bathroom or something happens and we'll just be chit-chatting. And then they'll say something like, you know, he's been drinking a lot lately. And then it, it blossoms from there. And for for the patient, it's it can be tough because they're sometimes caught off guard and they weren't ready to talk about something they weren't ready to talk about. Right. So the the, the just to recap, the family Sorry. member grabs you outside yeah. the hallway and says, by the way, yes. so-and-so is drinking a lot. Yes. Do you then go in and then address? No, not typically. Um, well, what, what I'll say something, I'll say something to, in general to the effect of, first of all, I'll say to the family member, have you talked to them about this? Because if you haven't talked to them about it, yeah, I shouldn't be the one to broach this topic right now. You guys want to have a conversation about it. And sometimes the family member, the spouse will say something like, yeah, I've said something to him, but he doesn't believe me or he doesn't think it's an issue. So I think you should talk to him about it. So then I'll go back into the room and I'll say, you know, so-and-so, I hear your wife is a, um, has a couple worries about some things. Do you guys want to talk about that right here? And I'll actually let them talk about it. Um, I won't say anything. <laughs> okay, so you're um, not the one disclosing the no. information. You're encouraging the yes. conversation. Yeah, you almost become them. you almost become a couples counselor um, oh, because, because you because you say you know you know I've heard I've heard someone's concerned about you and such. Why don't you talk? Why don't you both talk about that right now? And then, but they talk about it in the presence of me. So then, whatever it is that they're saying, I'm actually able to hear what is going on without having to directly ask the patient themselves. You know how much they're drinking and what's going on and, and so forth. The information is just coming to me passively at that point. So in your experiences, when you, uh, for those who have a family member or a loved one that they're mm -hmm. concerned about yeah. for an addiction, it's to go to the yeah, appointment I with them. Yeah, I would definitely recommend going to the appointment with them. That can be helpful. Um, however, uh, first and foremost, I will always respect my patient's privacy and so forth. So if there's at any point where I feel like there's boundaries being crossed or information um, being shared that should not be, um, I will always make sure the patient 100% knows what I'm saying with their family member about them. Cause I never want them to find out that there was some secret that their family member was talking to me about. And then the patient didn't know. So I fully disclose everything eventually, but I do encourage the talk between them. So yes, I encourage coming to appointments. No, I'm not going to talk to you privately without the patient present. Yeah, so, yep. Yeah. So my final question, I can't help but think, did our system fail her? There's this one moment, you know, and, and I, in, in anticipation of our, our talk today, I looked up some stats from um, National Institute on Drug Abuse that says we spend $78.5 billion on prescription opioids um, and that women are at a higher risk uh, of opioid use and there's pregnancy and opioid exposed mm -hmm. babies and women are the fastest growing segment of substance abusers. Um, that came from the Federal Center for Substance Abuse Prevention, an article from Very Well Mind. Um, this, this is a, a topic that affects many of us in some way or another. Um, and it sounds like for this patient, the system failed her. And we can go all the way back to that mm -hmm. moment that she was in the hospital. Um, and when she was given a, a pill she didn't know and was filled by a doctor for a number of months, um, so did the, did the fail system, did the system, I'm sorry, did the system <laughs> fail her? You know, and I, I've asked myself that question a lot, um, cause it's the system I work in. So to think that it's failing my patients is, um, really troubling to me. And so I don't know if, you know, I just don't want to use the word fail or if I just want to think that it would have happened anyway. 
Um, you know, is this person that was already prone to addiction, was she going to become addicted one way or the other? That just happened to be that moment. I don't know. Um, I do think though that in our system as clinicians and prescribers, really for us, this is such a lesson to be so cautious about what it is we're doing and how what we're prescribing really, really does change lives. And so I take it as maybe not so much a system failure, but a wake up call that this probably happens a lot. Thank you, Dr. D, for joining us today uh, for a very uh, serious uh, topic, um, but for telling us about how it's impacted you. And I'm sure for those who are listening, the ways it's impacted our listeners as well. Thank you to the listener for joining us. We hope that you have gained some insight from today's talk, and we hope that you continue to listen to the podcast. This is Health Stories.